From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about a man who found a friend, lost him, and then found him again. Rob Kerr, my brother, mentor, father figure, the guy that all of us look to for outdoor adventure advice. Greg Mills was a beer brewer and rugby player who needed a change. The only things I enjoyed in life were beer and science. And I Googled those two things, found the brewing program at the University of California, Davis. Went there, graduated with the master brewer's degree, found a job in Alaska, randomly said, you know what? I've never been to Alaska. I didn't have a map. I just figured you drove north and turned left and (laughs) and you would be in Alaska. So I ended up in Anchorage. I had made rules for myself when I moved that I could only go somewhere that had access to the ocean and a rugby club. And so I randomly joined the uh, Green Dragons Rugby Club. And there was a guy on the team named Rob, who is about 10 years older than me. I could tell just from practice and some games that we played that this dude had been incredibly good at rugby. And I knew that because of how well he could cheat, which is a key piece of being good at rugby, learning (laughs) how to cheat with the refs not being able to see you. So we struck up a fast friendship over the game. He was building a little cabin structure on a piece of property, a remote piece of property. I had had some construction experience and through our friendship, I started helping him build this cabin wherever our schedules would line up. We spent countless days, hours. When I got there, it was a platform and a few sticks of lumber and that was it. Ultimately, it became a two-story cabin that the two of us built. Through all of this time out there and through an insane amount of Coors Lights that were his favorite, we discussed all of his outdoor adventuring. He had moved to Alaska in the probably mid-90s or something like that. and had gotten into adventure traveling and racing and just exploration and seeing everything there was to see. He did things like the uh, Iditarod Trail Invitational, the ITI. And after he stopped racing it, he became friends with the then race director and the two of them would go out and break trail and then he would work the Roan checkpoint, which is now called Rob's Roadhouse. The whole idea was that someday I would race this race. And the cool part would be halfway through the race, 200 miles in, I would hit the road checkpoint where everybody else is having a terrible time and a down moment. I would be seeing my best friend and then I would move on and try to finish the race. As our friendship progressed and I asked more and more questions, then he started taking me on small adventures that became larger adventures. And we just kept doing these things together until finally I said, I'm ready to do one of these big races. And so he and I started doing the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic together. I did multiple summers with him. There's also a Wilderness Ski Classic, of course, happening in the wintertime. So I trained to do the winter one with him as well. And uh, he and I did a couple of those together too. Competing in the Alaska Wilderness Classic means needing to hike, pack raft, climb, and navigate. And it also takes something more. The biggest thing is uh, just learning how to deal with your mind. 
if you're hiking 20 or 30 or 40 miles in a day, your legs will just get on board with that. It's your brain that starts messing with you and trying to make you want to quit or sleep or eat or just not be there anymore. If you're with a partner, then navigating that aspect of things, the friendship and the anger and the ups and downs, especially if you get lost for a little while. It's this unique bond in that because I had no experience and he had so much experience, I followed him blindly. I'm walking around holding the map upside down and I don't know anything about anything. And I, of course, had not lived in Alaska that long and I had never done any of this type of exploration. So an insane amount of trust and love for the person that you're with. In August of 2014, Greg and Rob tackled the Alaska Wilderness Classic again. During the first few days, they hiked with friends, but soon it was just the two of them. So we were doing a particularly long route. It's from Thompson Pass, which would be outside of Valdez, and then heading towards an old mining community called McCarthy. And Rob and I traveled for several days together through some vast, amazing glaciers and places where people I'm sure have not been that often. And we got down to what would be kind of the last river, the Tana River, that would ultimately get us too close to McCarthy. The Tana goes from a very wide river into a very narrow river, very deep, very fast moving, and it runs through this massive canyon. We were absolutely not going to run the canyon portion of this river. So we got out of the river before the canyon. We hiked up and over, sort of skirting the canyon, staying up at elevation and looking down at the river as we traveled. Near the end of the canyon, we found a good spot to travel down to the water. Got to the water, inflated our boats, and normally the way it would run is that Rob would go in the water first. He was better at route finding, navigating through the river than I was, but I am probably a better paddler. So I would come up in the rear, the idea being that perhaps I could catch up to him or I might be better at helping out in a scenario where you know, he needed help or something like that. So we're about to launch our boats, we're sitting, my butt's kind of still in the sand and he gets out into the water and he goes and there's just a, was seemingly very innocuous whirlpool, like a eddy looking thing in this river right at the end of the canyon, a little bend. And he went towards it, his boat spun kind of a little bit, and then he flipped out of it. I'm still sitting on the sand watching this and he's just swimming alongside his boat, look like normal, you fall out of your rafts occasionally. He had lots of experience with this, although he was not a strong swimmer and did not like the water at all. So his boat sort of spun around, he was swimming beside it. Now, since his boat turned, I could no longer see his face but the boat moved straight across the river to the other side and stopped. And I just assumed, of course, that he had swum with his boat over to the side of the river, was getting ready to get back in. And then the boat just stopped and there was no more movement. So I hopped in my boat, paddled as hard as I possibly could, got to the other side. There was sort of a giant rock outcropping separating our two boats and I scrambled up the rock looked down his boat wasn't moving I jumped off that rock landed in the water and there was nothing there it was just his boat I flipped that right side up 
and he's nowhere to be found. I pull his boat back on to shore, start trying to figure out what do I do? Where do I go from here? I look around, I'm yelling, but of course the river's moving. So you can't, you know, the sound of rapids and things. Even if you were yelling for me, I don't think that I would have been able to hear his voice. So he was wearing a life jacket, but not like a dry suit or anything like that. There's only so much time you could spend in near freezing glacial rivers before your time's up. I knew that his backpack had the sat phone in it. So I scrambled and got the sat phone out and put that in my stuff. And then I packed up all of his gear, got my boat and began to slowly float the river. I found a, a really good wide sandbar and I set up all of our stuff right there so that if he was coming back for me, he would see all of the colors. We had been separated before on little things, you know, a sweeper in the river or something like that. And generally you get out, you yell for each other. If the brush is high, you wave your paddle up in the air so the other guy can see. And we had always found each other again after being separated for little times. I kept walking the riverbanks as much as I could. And then I yelled pretty much until my voice went hoarse. I would say we were less than 12 hours from the finish line. We would have floated a couple of hours and then hiked roughly 10 miles and that would have been it. The separation between the two of us occurs. I have all of this stuff, but I know this guy's an animal. He can survive anything, no big deal. He'll come back, he'll find me. As it got darker, I decided that I would just set up camp spread all of our stuff out. I had a little green tent that was pretty brightly colored and I put it at the end of this sandbar and just decided, okay, I'll stay here. I took the sat phone and I sent a little text to someone who may have been waiting at the finish line just to say, Rob and I are separated. I haven't seen him in this many hours. I don't know what the deal is, but I'm staying put where I am. Ultimately, I got some phone calls back telling me, you know, it's dark, stay put turn off your phone and save the battery. In the morning, someone's gonna come to help. So I just stayed put where I was. We've been in the woods at this point for, I would say six days or something like that. So I'm tired, I'm hungry. I had no more food left really. I had some coffees and that was it. I ripped Rob's bag open. He had a package of ramen and a canister of fuel. So I took his fuel canister and made coffee, but I was not gonna eat his last food. What if he came back? He would be so hungry and so cold that I just no way I was gonna touch that ramen. So I just left it sitting there. Tried to sleep, but it just came and fits and starts. And I would constantly think I heard him just fall asleep and then shoot up thinking he was there. And then being reminded of the situation that I was in and just kept doing that until the sun finally came up. I kept calling for him and looking and pacing and just crying, all of those things, trying to figure out what could I do? You know, could I have done something better? What was gonna happen now? These bush pilots in Alaska are capable of magnificent things. And this guy landed a plane beside my tent on a sandbar in the middle of a river canyon. And we discussed what happened, where were you? He was able to help me talk through the whole thing. And then I got in his plane and we flew over the whole thing. We went back to where the start, 
flew over it and then we flew around lower down the river and then came back and landed at my tent. And uh, he said he was going to be in contact with more people who could help with rescue efforts and things like that. So that pilot drops me off. I stay put. I'm freaking out. I just don't know what to do. And I just keep pacing and another pilot comes in at a different time, a man named Paul Klaus, who is a very famous bush pilot. And he landed and brought me sandwiches and cookies and things like that and forced me to eat. And he's telling me he knows exactly what I'm going through and I just can't register that. But he had rafted through that canyon years and years ago, had a big accident, people died. So the only other person in the world that could understand identically what I had been through was now on a sandbar forcing me to eat a sandwich. He stayed there with me uh, and talked through some stuff. And then he worked through the phone channels and whatever he needed to do to talk to the actual like rescue squadron, the real military helicopters that show up and do those kinds of things. And a very giant, very vicious looking helicopter with a bunch of guys on it came in. They landed on the side of the sandbar, discussed with me what had happened. Paul got in the helicopter with them to help them fly through the area. And they were going so close to the water that the rotor wash was actually pushing the river water up the sides of the canyons. It was unbelievable. They don't find him at that point. They drop Paul off. He flies me back to McCarthy, what would be the finish line where Rob's wife is standing. And my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, so I have to come in and explain to Rob's wife that he's gone. You know, I just want to be by myself. I'm just, I've got his gear and my gear and I'm just sitting there. I was being debriefed and asked all these questions by the park service to try to figure out, you know, through maps, where could he be? What was going on? His wife is devastated. My girlfriend doesn't know what to do. The helicopter actually was able to recover Rob some hours later. Uh, he had floated several miles down the river and was sort of stuck under a bend and under some trees and they were only able to find it him because of that rotor wash being able to push the water away. They came back to McCarthy. His wife was the first to see the body. She is bawling, crying. Um, they get her out of the helicopter. I go into the helicopter to make the positive identification and they leave me alone so that I can talk to him. And, you know, I, I identify the body. I gave him some words. I pulled out his license that was in his gear, gave that to the authorities or whatever. And then they flew his body away. That was uh, one of the most intense things. I'm so sorry. So, no problem. It's five years, that still hurts. Greg had only done a few solo adventures on his own. 
but he really wanted to ski the Iditarod Trail Invitational, the ITI, in honor of Rob. It's a 300-plus mile winter trek through Alaskan mountains along the famous Iditarod Trail. Greg signed up for the March 2020 race. It was a above-average snow year, and then the night before the race started, it snowed something like two feet. And that meant that although the trails and stuff that you would start on exist, they weren't broken. So there had been no snow machiners going through, no dog sleds going through. So all the bikers, runners, skiers start at the exact same time and then just start plowing through the snow. That first night, I just camped out of my own in my tent, woke up to the sound of snow falling on my tent, knowing like, well, I need to get going because it's not going to get better just sitting here. Kept going, camped out this next night, was slow to rise, finally got moving on that day. And the idea was I was going to push into the night to get from Squintna to Shell Lake, where there was a little log cabin with a wood stove that you would be able to sleep in. I had done this particular area before. I had made it to the Shell Lake on a previous race, so I was familiar with this area. When we were at the Squintna area, the wind had picked up. It was brutal. There were cyclists that were leaving the checkpoint. They would be gone for a few minutes and then come back. And they were just going on and on and on about how terrible the conditions were. White out, so windy, can't see anything. It's brutally cold. And I just wanted to keep going. I know it just kind of sucks in this flat, marshy area that, of course, frozen. But it's just flat and you keep going until you can get into the shell hills. So I just ate as much as I could, got my gear dry in front of a wood stove and then took off. And it was brutal. The trail was getting blown over and it wasn't a lot of fun to be out there and the wind was coming sideways. So it was hard to protect, you know, just one half of your face and it was getting darker. So my mantra when I am on the trail is keep walking, don't die. Since Rob's death, that's all I've ever told myself as I hike, keep walking, don't die. So that's what I was doing. And had my head down for miles and miles. It was very cold, very windy, unfun. It was getting darker, but I knew just a few miles up and over this hill and you're at the lodge, there will be food, there's warmth, it'll be fine. I also knew that I had all the gear I needed to sleep out if I needed to, but I didn't necessarily want to. I had my mind set on this lodge. I got to the Shell Hills. It was a lovely trail. It's broken through the trees. It's relatively well marked. There are two ways to get through this. There's the main route and there's a side route, which I had done in the past. I ultimately chose to go the side route because a big snow cat had come through to blaze this trail for, I assume, people that live in the area. I knew where it went. I was fine with it. And so I took off that way. The downfall of that is that basically no one else was going to go that way because they all went the main way. At this point, it's probably midnight-ish. I, I crest this hill, being guided by headlamp, and there's just a moose staring at me. I shuffled over to the right-hand uh, side of the trail, 
and just sort of yelled at it and announced my presence and said, everything's fine here. Hey, Moose. Hey, Moose. And uh, it started running at me. Of course, heart rate skyrocketing. I'm not 100% sure what to do here. I'm kind of like leaning against a tree, but I can't really go anywhere. I'm pulling a sled. I'm all on skis. And this moose just flies past me. Just a hard gallop and is gone. That was enough to get me very nervous. I'm scared. I'm tired. It's cold. (laughs) I'm hungry. Okay, no big deal. It sort of dawning on me that, of course, the moose are staying on this now plowed version of the trail because the snow is so deep in the area. The moose are angry. They're not getting as much food as perhaps they normally would. The traveling is much harder for them through all that snow, so they just stay where it's easy. I don't have as much experience with moose. I've always seen them as somewhat unpredictable. You get used to them, but on the trail, you never know what is going to happen in your moose encounter. And generally your best bet is make some noise, keep a tree between you and it, and (laughs) you're going to be okay. That moose has gone past me. I've now crested a hill and I start to go down this hill. I spot another moose and it's sort of looking at me. I've got my headlamp on it. Their eyes are reflective. So the two eyes staring at me, I go with the, all the, hey, moose, you know, and I'm talking to it, explaining why I'm here and where I would like to go and if it would please get out of my way. And I'm kind of clanking my ski poles together and I clap. And since I am going downhill as I move and do these little things, I keep scooting just a little bit more forward each time. So closing that gap between the two of us. I'm looking around trying to figure out what to do in this particular scenario, I have a wall of snow at either side of me, a moose in front of me. I try to to move sort of into the deeper snow. I still keep moving forward every time I do that. And at some point, the moose has now just changed its body position. It's looking straight at me, but it's just standing there. It seems like it doesn't care all that much. And I'm just hoping it'll walk away, it'll get scared, it'll run past me. And uh, it starts to come towards me in like a, a slow walk and then it speeds up and it's going faster and faster. And I'm sort of like, you know, braced and ready to dive into the snow. And then it lowered its shoulder and just trucked me. I've been hitting rugby a lot. And this thing completely took me off of my feet and into the snowbank. And I'm just screaming, no, no, no. And of course, every expletive that can fly from my mouth is coming out. I ski in like a plastic ski boot attached to old school three pin bindings. That is a system that you don't necessarily break free from. It's not like a regular downhill ski that releases when you have a torque on it. So I am basically strapped to a sled strapped to my skis and I have ski poles strapped to my wrist and I'm just backwards upside down turtle kicking up at this thing it's fighting back between the two of us my skis pop off and I'm just kicking as hard as I can towards its like shoulders upper torso everything is being like flashed through my headlamp I see moose hoofs as they're just passing my face just like right side to side I keep getting hit like in the chest and the stomach, but the snow's so deep that every time I get hit, it just pushes me deeper. I'm not getting hurt in any way. 
but I keep screaming and jamming with my poles. They have spiky ends and I'm trying to do anything, hit it in the face, poke its eye, do whatever I can do to try to get this thing to stop. And it just keeps stopping, but I can't go anywhere because I'm sort of stuck. And it backs off for just a second and I start scrambling backwards just into the deep snow. And as I scramble, I realize I'm stuck. The sled is sort of packed into the snow. The strapping harness that I set up for this thing is kind of around my shoulders and my waist. And I just start fumbling through, breaking all the different pieces off that I can. And I finally get that off. My poles are still attached to my hands. And I scoot backwards and through the snow. And I'm just giving it everything I've got to get towards a little stand of spruce trees. And I get to the trees. And there's like a, I call it a tree well, but where the snow doesn't fill in under the boughs of the branches. And I slid down into the tree well and got, you know, a couple of spruce trees between me and the moose. And this thing is just snorting, puffing. And it's just like looking left, looking right around this tree. It just keeps going back and forth, staring at me. And I try to just like be as still as I possibly can. Now the adrenaline is starting to wear off a little bit. I have been dressed for movement. I had thick gloves on because it was cold out, but my top and bottom was just like very light layers that can breathe when you're moving. Now that I'm sitting still, I just start shivering and knowing like, okay, I'm stuck in this moment, but I have to get warm. And I try to move towards my sled a little bit and it, the moose freaks out. And I just keep doing this little cat and mouse game and reaching out further and further and further finally I'm able to grab like a little piece of the sled and drag that back to me and then wait and the moose calms down and I start fumbling through the gear I find the my foam pad for sleeping and I put that out now I've got a barrier between me and the snow and then I have to wait for a while after that and then the moose calms down and I fumble through my gear and find my puffy jacket and my puffy pants and I get all of that on so now I'm not freezing to death at this moment I look at my water bottle, it is solid frozen. Nothing I can do, and I just want this moose to go away. So I try everything I can do. I get pots and pans. I get a uh, like a Ziploc bag. I inflated it and popped it to try to make a scary sound. None of these things worked. I tried pleading with it. I tried talking to the moose. I tried <laughs> screaming. At one point, I see a headlamp way off in the distance and i'm assuming it's from the cyclist but i just keep thinking he'll show up it'll scare the moose and everything will be okay he does get close enough i hear his voice say something i can't make out what it is the moose is completely undeterred and then he i'm assuming he turns around he does something else he camps out for the night but the cyclist is <laughs> is no longer there that was my one hope for help this whole interaction occurs over the course of three to four hours, sometime between like 1 and 5 a.m. I have a little spot tracker. All competitors in the ITI carry spots. So anyone that could be looking at that time frame would see that I'm there, but it would show that I'm not moving and I'm two miles from the checkpoint. Most people, I'm assuming, would think I was just camping out, but it seems insane to camp out when you are two miles away from where you need to be. I'm just sort of resigned now to sitting in this hole, figuring this thing out. And I just turn off my headlamp and sort of lean against a tree. And I think it was the turning off of the headlamp 
that got the moose to care so much less about what I was doing. And then he started to walk a little bit further away. And then if I were to make a noise, he would come back, but he kept going further away. From time to time, I would turn on my lamp to see what was going on. Of course, that would bring him all back. And so I just sort of assessed my situation. When he would go far enough away, I would slowly scamper out and try to turn my sled in the correct direction. Once I got that, then it was see if I can get my poles in the right direction. See if I can go out far enough to get a ski and get that back. And then get both skis and get back. And so now I've got all of my gear and I'm trying to figure out what I can do at this point. I get all of my gear together and I work my way out towards the trail. And at this point, the moose is looking at me, but it's not coming back to me anymore. I turn on my headlamp to assess and it's looking at me, but it's not coming back at me. And I finally get standing in the trail. I've got my gear and I say, okay, I'm going to start to move slowly. I'm going to back down the hill. It's away from him. And bonus, it's in the direction that I want to be going. So I'm able to slowly creep down this hill. And it always keeps looking at me, but it never comes towards me. And I get down the hill, I'm able to do a slight bend in the trail, and then there's no longer a visual between the two of us. And I strap on my gear sort of as best I can without caring about it too much, and just start trucking as hard as I can. Every reflection, every little reflector on a tree, whatever, I think it's a moose. Every little shadow, I think it's a moose. It's just got me, I'm so riled up. And I get to a flat stretch, there's another moose standing in front of me. And I'm just thinking like, seriously, <laughs> I can't do this again. And I shuffle off the trail and into some trees. I've got everything attached to me and I'm just breaking through the snow. I don't care. I just don't want to be in front of the moose anymore. And it starts running down the trail towards me. And then it just keeps going. It just kept going, and I thought, like, finally, maybe I'm out of this thing. And I get back onto the trail and go as hard as I can, which I'm sure was not very fast, to get to this cabin. I get there. I'm just so cold and tired. I don't really care about my situation. I just want, like, food, water, sleep. You know, I have all my gear off, and I pull up my shirt, and I don't have a mark. I've got nothing. There's not a scratch. There's not a bruise. My jacket's not torn. It was ultimately that drive to visit Rome to see Rob's Roadhouse that made me keep going. At this lodge, there's an airstrip. I could have flown home. There was a person or people that were quitting the race anyway, so there was a plane coming. And if you ever need an excuse to stop doing something as stupid as skiing 300 miles, you know, a moose attack and this plane being there, all of that was set up for me to be like, I'm good. But I had to see Roan. I had already made it 100 miles. I had 100 more to go to get to Roan. No big deal. Let's just go do this thing. Let's go see Rob's Roadhouse and then play it by ear from there. Everywhere I went, I was able to tell Rob's story to anyone that would listen. Some people had done that race multiple times and knew Rob. Others had heard of him or had heard of his death or his adventures or whatever. There were certain days where, as I looked up the trail, just a, a tear would fall from my eye and be like, all right, Rob, I'm coming. Just let me get through the day. And 
the highest point of the race is a rainy pass and Rob's oldest dog was named Rainy. I had helped him deal with Rainy's death. So taking a picture at Rainy Pass was another very emotional moment. Downhill from Rainy Pass is an area called the Dalzell Gorge. It's a very intense thing. If you ever see the Iditarod Trail, the sled dogs go through it. It is steep, it is narrow, it is fast, and the snow conditions were perfect. I mean, I flew. I was just double pulling, flying on skis, having the most fun, so elated to get through this whole thing. But then I was able to ski slowly into Rhone to this little checkpoint. There was a sign there. It says Rob's Roadhouse. Inside that tent, it says it's something to the effect of the only way to get to McGrath is to leave Rhone. And I know that Rob had always put that sign up. It was one of those things that people always say. It's the last like safe checkpoint before you do this very long stretch on your own. So people love their own checkpoint, even though it's not, it's relatively remote. It's not as comfortable as some of the, the other ones. The other rule is that it's a first in, first out scenario. So as more racers come in, the person who's been there the longest gets booted out of the tent. So I knew don't go in the tent if you don't want your timer to start. So I stayed outside the tent with all of these people who knew Rob, who had worked this checkpoint with him. Man, I took any like hot dog that somebody was cooking. I accepted that. And then these bottles were being passed around, you know, Jameson and Fireball and beer after beer. And everyone knows that I'm there for Rob. So it became my celebration of the race being there. And of course, I'm just loving it but I'm not thinking about the fact that I'm dehydrated. I've lost a ton of weight by this point in the race and I am, I'm getting hammered. Finally, Greg went into the tent. He woke up with a terrible hangover, but it was worth it. It was just a trip after that. It was just keep walking, don't die. Slow and steady, several more days. And then the, the race was over in the graph and you know, there was nothing like really crazy that happened in between those two points, uh, but it was, so happy that I had accomplished this thing, that I had told his story a thousand times and just was able to do it. I pushed from the village of Nikolai to McGrath through the night, just did a 24 hour push because I just wanted to be done. So as you're coming closer to the village of McGrath, there is a quote unquote road. It would be gravel in the summertime. It's just a snow road in the wintertime, but it is like 20 miles of just nothing. And it's the middle of the night, it was like negative 30 or something like that, plus wind. As I get closer and closer to town, I can see, you know, some structures are starting to exist and things like that. In the snow around me are spray painted things with like, way to go, Greg. And I'm just assuming, okay, some other person named Greg has come through here. And then there were like little inside jokes painted in the snow that I thought like, my wife would know to write something that dumb there and then I knew like she's here that's amazing I'll see her soon but no one assumed that I would push through the night like that so I end up finishing this thing sometime around four or five in the morning there is no one there there's no fanfare no one to pat me on the back no one to take a photo of it it is ridiculously cold there's not even a light illuminating the finish sign you end at a person's house, a lovely family that takes care of all the racers very, very well. I walk in the door, the checkpoint 
attendant is like falling asleep at the table. She had been watching my tracker. I see just how tired she is. And I just say, you know, like point me towards the food, the shower or whatever. And then you need to go to bed. And she was just like, thank you. <laughs> Showed me where everything was and she went to sleep. So I was in this house by myself or the only one awake, eating as much food as I could hold. But like, of course, I finished this thing and there was nobody there to see it. Then I fell asleep for a couple of hours. I woke up with my wife standing over me like, <laughs> you know, I didn't expect to see you <laughs> so soon. And it was just a really exciting thing to see her, to be done with it. Of course, tell more Rob stories to people and then eat as much as I possibly could. So it was a, a very exciting thing to have had done. In the end, it was Rob who helped Greg finish the ITI in more ways than one. I went from in, let's say, 2010 to having never skied before to 2020 skiing 350 miles by myself. Our storyteller was Greg Mills. Greg lives in Anchorage with his wife and dogs, and he still adventures in the wilds of Alaska. You can see pictures of Greg and Rob when you follow us on social media at Human Nature Pod. I'm Erin Jones. This episode was produced by Greg Ronco. Editing help came from Charles Fournier, Sarah Ann Leverett, and Alec Schaefer. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.